When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to get an inside look at the world of comics, and then we're going to discuss the top five villains of all time. What for many people is a barrier in entry was uh, was an on-ramp for me. You know, the idea that I could basically never know it all. I, could never, I would never be done reading this story. There's a responsibility to these characters. It's, it's work for hire and they're licensed characters, but at the same time, they're so iconic. DC characters are so iconic. These symbols uh, are, are known worldwide, and what they stand for is honestly going to live longer than me. Uh, and you guys are going to get some really, really wild, uh, iconic moments with Diana that you don't know are coming. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. I have always been fascinated by comics. I love superheroes. I love the supervillains, the different characters, the stories. I was fascinated from an early age, and that's something that's really stuck with me. But I've also always really wondered, really wondered, what goes into it? Like, how does the writing process work? Where do they come up with these stories? Is there a lot of pressure that's involved in writing somebody like Batman that's just such an iconic character? Especially now as we move forward where there seems to be so much more at stake than it's not just comics. Now it's movies and et cetera, et cetera, all this kind of stuff. Our first guest has some amazing perspective about that. He's a comic book writer who has written for Batman... Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter, some of the biggest names that are out there. This is Steve Orlando. What do you remember most about that first comic you picked up? Uh, well, the first comic I picked up was actually uh, West Coast Avengers uh, number 16, which was um, a tale of two kitties. It's about Hellcat and Tigra fighting over the Hellcat costume. Uh, and then eventually Tiger Shark shows up and they realize that they need to put aside the differences and beat up Tiger Shark. And, um, they beat him by clipping his dorsal fin, even though I'm pretty sure he just is a person in a costume and that shouldn't actually beat him. Uh, and, uh, then they make up and Hellcat gets to keep the cat outfit and Tiger wears a bikini for the next 30 years. What was it about it? Were you hooked right from there? Or did it take a little bit more? 
Um, I think, like, well, I was on and off. I mean, that was my first book, but the thing is, I was getting them from flea markets in central New York, so I don't, you know, I know what the publication date on that comic is, but I probably wasn't actually reading it in 1987, because I was two, but I was, like, in and out. You know, I, I, I was I was reading stuff, but not current books, because I was getting them uh, either at sports memorabilia shows with my father, uh, or, or flea markets. And then, um, the next time I tried to really get in happened to be in 92, and that was the Clone Saga, which is what drove people away from comics, but I still stuck around a little bit. Uh, and uh, then I just got wrapped up in, you know, knowing me, probably video games at that age that I was in, or Power Rangers. And I finally came back in 97 when we made Superman Electric and Blue. And, you know, I was naive at the time. I said, oh, I have to buy these books because Superman's never going back to the old costume and the old power, so I need to get on board. And... Um, and he never did. But um, for me, it was like, it, it was the creativity and it was the team creativity. What really sold me, I wanted to get into comics and sticking sticking with comics was this vast shared, shared universe and this idea, you know, what for, what for many people is a barrier in entry was, uh, was an on-ramp for me. You know, the idea that I could basically never know it all. I could never, I would never be done reading this story. The story of the Marvel Universe, the story of the DC Universe, I'm never going to be done. So there's going to be more of it. And there's, you know, at that time, 50 years of it that had already happened. So it was, it was an endless sort of wealth of, of characters and stories for me. Uh, and from a creative standpoint, this editorial about how they came up with Electric Superman and, 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 and how the writer did his work and how the designers and artists and editors did their work was fascinating to me. So it was soon after that I decided that I wanted to write comics. But it's, it's, it's the vastness. Even for you now, is it more about the characters or more about the stories that you can tell with the characters? I don't know. And, and I think that's kind of the same thing, right? Like, to, to be honest, like if you... You're only attracted to characters as a creator who you can tell stories with. Uh, but then again, I think our job is to find what find the core of any character and what's interesting and unique about them. So I think that the attraction is always the characters. If you put what you want to say in them before you know who they are, you're not really doing your job, in my opinion. I mean, we can put any words in someone's mouth, but we've all seen what it's like when someone speaks and it's out of character. So uh, loving the characters and understanding really who they are, to me, uh, it's why I'm still here. And, and beyond that is also our job. How do you How do you become a writer for DC or Marvel? I mean, it's not the kind of – it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you find on Indeed or – uh, I mean, it is like, it's like you're, anything else, um, in the entertainment industry, which is to say it's a lot of networking, you know, you can, uh, I studied writing, uh, when I was in college, but it's important to say that you need to look at those times as an incubator for your own talent and an opportunity to be free of the rigors of adult life, uh, and, and have a chance to work and develop your own skills. But uh, the certificate you get at the end of any type of school, whether you have an MFA or you just have an undergraduate degree or you have no degree, uh, or you have a law degree like Charles. So the point is like, uh, it doesn't actually mean that you're owed a job or you're ready for a job. It just means you completed a bunch of classes. So at the same time I was going to college, I had, since I was 12, started going to Comic-Cons and trying to meet editors uh, from, you know, and, and, and network and make connections so that when I was eventually uh, writing and creating at a professional level, 
if there were opportunities, people would think of me. And so that's why breaking into any type of, 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 of creative field, music, comics, film and TV, is it all starts with talent and desire. But a key is to spend time, and it's an obligatory key, is to spend time networking and making personal connections because if you're in your house and you're incredibly talented, I would never take that away from you, but you need to be the person that the people that give the jobs out think of uh, when those jobs arise. And so honing your craft is one thing, and then honing yourself and how you present yourself is an equal thing when it comes to any type of creative field and finding work in it. Do you have a general approach for what for for when you go to tell a story? Like, is there a certain pattern that you follow or a certain mindset that you have? Well, I mean, I like complete stories. So, like, I, you know, ongoing runs are ongoing runs, but I still think of arcs as they need to have a beginning and middle and end. On Wonder Woman, for example, I don't do the same thing every time, but I think that you can lead into meandering territory if you don't know when the things you start are going to pay off. And there's an era of comics that is that is iconic for that. And, uh, you know, Chris Claremont, famous for not paying stuff uh, for 15, 10, 15, 20 years in X-Men. But it's also a rare gift to have that long uh, where you're uh, holding the reins of a book. So what I think of with all these things is not necessarily, oh, I don't plug it into a formula. Uh, but what I do do is make sure that we have clear goals for the characters. Uh, we have clear desires for them and that there might be one overall theme, uh, if you're doing an ongoing, you know, for example, uh, Wonder Woman is going to slowly be revealed to be about, uh, uh, not necessarily peace, but, but what the concept of truth means today. Uh, and, and it's going to be about her wrestling with the fact that as much as she's often thought about the fact that there isn't an objective truth, there really isn't. There are facts, but it's not as though her truth and her morals, uh, necessarily apply to everyone so the idea that when she puts someone in the golden lasso they'll always tell the truth and they'll always see the truth but the idea that it will be the truth as she expects it and she sees it is a falsehood and that's and that's hard for her so we'll know those themes and that will continue to develop over every arc of wonder woman and every arc will speak to that but at the same time it's important to me that Every three issues, every four issues, however long something is, even if it's a one-shot issue, has a beginning, a middle, and end that emboldens that thesis but also gives you a complete story uh, and has something to say in its own right. When you're writing for DC as you are now or for one of the major – I'll use the word publications. I'm not sure if that's correct or not. Do they assign you a book or do you get to kind of pick or is it a little bit of a mixture of both? It's a little bit of both. I mean you can um, – you can uh, – sort of politic and, and, and lobby for things. I mean, Martian Manhunter, which is probably my favorite thing I've ever done, not just at DC, but whether it's an original concept or, or, or a licensed property, I probably haven't done a book that I'm prouder of than that. And part of the reason is that, like, Riley Rossman and I willed that book into life. I mean, yes, DC had to approve it, and they've been extremely supportive of the book, but we spent a year trying to convince people that this was the thing for us to do. Uh, you know, before Batman and the Shadow had even ended, uh, we started talking to people about what would be next. So that can happen. And at the same time, what can happen 
is when people make offers to you. And that can be, you know, I, I had been supporting as a writer on Wonder Woman for two years. And when we found out Willow was going to go to the Dreaming, which is just an opportunity she couldn't pass up, uh, it, they said, you know, you've been supporting on this book for a long time, Steve. Would you like to take it over? You know, and so it can happen like that. It can happen like Batman Shadow happened, where I had worked with Riley before uh, on Night of the Monster Men, but it was more so that within the office I was well known as being a huge, huge Shadow fan, probably the biggest Shadow fan at DC. And so when the book came together and I knew that Scott was going to be co-plotting uh, with me, obviously Scott Snyder knows Batman better than almost anyone, uh, but he, we wanted someone to be, they wanted someone of equal passion for the shadow and, and that person was me. And so they, so they came to me with the offer. So, you know, there's no one way to break into comics and there's no one way to get work in comics. It happens every way. You can cold email people. People can cold email you. Uh, you can, things can come up out of nowhere. I've gotten jobs because in my six years at DC, I've never missed a deadline. And so I've, they've, I've gotten a call at, five in the afternoon on a day and oh Steve you know we need this entire book done in a day or less can you do it you know and I can always do it and so um jobs come in all shapes and forms the work process comes in all shapes and forms uh but uh, the reality as I said is that all of those things happen not just because of your skill but because of your persona and how you present yourself with reliability and professionalism. So that brings it back to, as I said earlier, your talent is one thing and yourself is another. And they're equally important when it comes to getting work uh, in the creative field. How long will it take you to write a comic book? Well, as I just said, it could take as little as 10 hours, um, but that's not ideal. <laughs> um, you know, when I was on Midnighter, I like to tell myself that I would like two weeks and uh, that was – at the time, I thought that was a short amount of time because it was a monthly book. But now that almost seems luxurious. I try to say two weeks all the time, but the reality is it usually takes four and a half days. And that's for like a standard 20 to 22-page book. Uh, you know. But there's a lot of work that goes before that. When it actually comes to taking your outline or your, or your summary of the book and turning it into a comic script, yeah, that usually takes me four and a half days. I, I plot – and not everybody works the same. Some people plot and dialogue the action at the same time. That's not how I think. So I will plot the action over two days. I will then dialogue the action over two days. And then when Friday morning comes, I revise it and turn it in. Uh, and that's a normal week. It's like a normal work week. And, that, and that's something, you know, again, everybody works differently. For me, I try to treat this like a real, well, not nine to five, more like a 10 to 10 job. Uh, but my mentor when I was 12 told me that if I didn't treat comics like a job, it would never be one. And that was a lot for a 12 year old to hear, but it was also absolutely true. What role has movies played? Like, has that added? I want to thank Steve so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We have also linked to him on the RSS feed that's on his podcast. His stories are awesome. It's really cool to see that after all of this time, writers like him are still able to make you, to make you interested in these characters and come up with new stories to tell. I think it's really cool. I think it's fascinating. To the pressure, or is that taking some off of it? No, those people should be scared of us because we can do everything they can do in a movie faster, less expensive, and with an unlimited budget. Um, 
restrained only by my uh, the imagination of the creative team, you know. So um, it's not scary at all. Actually, it's just a huge. It, it's it's a challenge, and it's one that I think is important because we have to offer, especially now that you can get these characters in films and TV. We have to offer that much more. We have to push ourselves that much more to be bolder, to be more subversive, to be grander, to be more creative. Um, and I, that's what I try to do with my work. I think, you know, thinking about the DC icons, I know what's coming in James Tynan's work on Batman, and he's delivering that. He's delivering a story that just is huge and architectural in scale and, and isn't something you could get in a movie. With Wonder Woman, we are trying to do the same. We're trying to do enormous uh, mythic storytelling, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all mythology-inspired arcs. It just means that scale of big things happening and one huge thing leading into another is key. And that's what you're getting with Bendis on Superman, too, if you want to round out the Trinity. You know, like we're getting this this, this big storyline where he's revealing a secret identity and, you know, that's something we, at, at minimum, haven't seen really in, in, in a modern uh, Superman TV or film. Yes, we absolutely did see it, by the way, in, in Superman 2, but that was a while ago. And this, the world has changed around that moment. So, Is it intimidating at all, though, to I'm, – I'm writing Wonder Woman, this legendary character. I'm writing Batman. Like, I, to me, that would just seem like a surreal experience. Was it like that for you? See, that is intimidating, but not because she has a movie. Uh, it's intimidating because of the legions of fans and the massive legacy of the characters and, and how much she means or they mean to so many people. So as that way, the answer is different. You know? um, and I felt this way in Supergirl, too. Um, there's a responsibility to these characters. It's, it's work for hire and they're licensed characters, but at the same time, uh, they're so iconic. DC characters are so iconic. These symbols uh, are, are known worldwide, and what they stand for is honestly going to live longer than me. Uh, not that I'm planning to die anytime soon, but it's going <laughs> to live longer than any of us, you know? And so that is a huge thing to be a part of. And again, that is intimidating. The responsibility to tell the best stories you can to the, uh, to, to, for and not appease, but stimulate and pro and, and provoke and 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 uh, inspire the people who love this character to carry on the tradition of what the character has been. That's huge, and I think uh, the amount of times that I got messages about Supergirl, and I'm hopefully you know, our, hopefully what we have coming in Wonder Woman really moves people as well. So as that way, the answer is different, you know, um, and I felt this way in Supergirl too. Um, there's a responsibility to these characters. It's, it's work for hire and they're licensed characters, but at the same time, uh, they're so iconic. DC characters are so iconic. These symbols, uh, are, are known worldwide and what they stand for is honestly going to live longer than me. Uh, not that I'm planning to die anytime soon, but it's going to live longer than any of us, you know? And so that is a huge thing to be a part of. I'm, I feel like I'm going to phrase this question horribly, but hopefully well enough that you can understand what I'm trying to ask. Is when, you, when you're talking about the fans, how do you balance kind of that adherence to continuity with being able to tell new stories, right? Like maybe in this story Batman lifts a car off of him, but it was established in 1985 that he's not strong enough to do that. It, how do you kind of balance 
that pressure from what has been done in the past with what can be done in the future. So when you first asked about what you love about these characters, it's, uh, you know, was it, was it the character or was it the stories you can tell with the characters? And the reality is like the quandary you just put forth is not necessarily about the fans, uh, but it is about, are you trying to tell what is more important to you being true to the character or just saying what you want to say? And in regards to specifically Batman lifting a car, you know, um, or something like that, if the story has brought him to a point where he can lift a car, then we've done our job. If we haven't supported that with his mindset, because, you know, moms lift cars off their kids all the time. That's not out of, you know, in a moment of adrenaline, that's not out of, that specific example is not out of Batman's ability to do. But if we haven't pushed him to that level, if we haven't, taken something that maybe seems out of character for him and brought him to a place where it's in character, then we haven't done our job, you know? And so, yeah. And I think if you push it too far, like you're saying, if you took it outside of your example, then what you're really doing is you're just more worried about what you want to say. And I don't necessarily want to use that as a pejorative, but if you're more worried about what you want to say than what is true to these iconic characters, then those ideas should go into an original work where you are creating the icons. So I think the balance is, is again, it's more about just understanding really what your role is. And as a creator on a work for hire character, your role is as a shepherd. You know, I, uh, I'm not bigger than wonder woman. Uh, no one on the creative team is what we are doing is trying to take the reins of this ship that has been going for 80 years and is going to go for 80 years more. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's an elastic band that you don't want to stretch until it breaks. Cause again, with that car analogy, our job is to deliver new moments that you haven't seen with these characters before. And the way you get drama out of those moments is to push these characters as far as they can possibly go. But we have to know when you've broken the rubber band, you know, there are so many things that Batman can do, but there are certain things that are not Batman. You know, and, and it's, and it is our job to know that. And ultimately it's our, our, our employer's job to know that as well. Um, a lot of things come into, can you, should you? And I'm like editorializing a little bit here, but whatever, you know, like, can you show a dream sequence where Batman murders a hundred million people, you know, one by one by stabbing them in the heart? Sure. It's a dream sequence. Uh, but does anybody really want to see Batman brutally murdering a hundred million people? Should you do that? Uh, you know, probably not. We have to be aware of what people come to these characters for and, and empower that and enrich that, uh, with stories that do challenge what they are, but don't go so far over the line that we've lost the core of the character. And when you lose the core of the character, I do think you lose the fans. And so that's why it's our job to always use that as our North Star. Who, who do you, from writing for Batman, who do you think is Batman's real personality? Bruce Wayne or Batman? Uh, I mean, I'm, I, don't, there's, I don't have the definitive answer on this, but if you're asking me, um, I'm, a type, I'm a person who thinks the opposite of Bill uh, from Kill Bill. I think that Clark Kent is the real person and Superman is, quote unquote, the act, if you must choose. 
And likewise, I think that Batman, that costume, that's who he really is. Uh, Bruce Wayne is an act. Uh, there's probably a version of Bruce Wayne that isn't an act, by the way. Like, you know, him in the Batcave where he's actually, like, expressing real emotion and regret for what's going on with the people in his life. That's probably a real Bruce Wayne. But the playboy billionaire philanthropist is, is not him. At least not currently. You know, there was a time where he was relatively well-adjusted, but the current interpretation does hold on to his pathos uh, very strongly. I remember when Grant Morrison took over Batman, and one of his things was like, he wants Batman to be allowed to be happy. And that doesn't mean Batman 66, but it did mean at some point we have to wonder is there a way for him to move on and find a modicum of closure from his parents' death without forgetting it, without forgetting his mission? But in real life, of course, if you saw a nebulously 30 to 35-year-old man that was still in one of the early stages of grieving 20-plus years later, you would be alarmed uh, for them. So I think Grant wanted to say that there's a way that he can still be Batman, similar to the sort of the Denny and Neil version but also experience joy and not and not be this 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 grim figure of the night that he sometimes is. So that's the long version of the fact that right now, at least, I think that he is most himself when he is in the costume as Batman. And I think that the Bruce Wayne that we see, I don't want to say it's an act; it's a tool for him to 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 accomplish his mission as Batman. You're kind of known for writing diverse characters. Do you think that comics has really introduced a lot of people to things they wouldn't otherwise see necessarily in their lives. Uh, absolutely. But, but I, I think, I think fiction in general has, and, and science fiction in general has, uh, I think we're, I mean, we're the first interracial kiss on television was on star Trek. Uh, I think that there is a legacy of, of science fiction and I consider superhero books, essentially science fiction, uh, a subgenre uh, to to push the social boundary and to open people's eyes, and what we're opening people's eyes to is the very humanity of of of, of people that maybe they've never met in real life. You know, to be frank, I think it's a long-standing tradition of comics. I think a lot of people probably learned about Judaism from Kitty Pride, and that's important. I'm 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 a Jew myself, so that popped to mind for me. But I think that. We learn from these characters, and so on some level, I think, just to carry that analogy, when you see the X-Men accepting that around the holidays they all celebrate Christmas and Kitty celebrates Hanukkah, uh, that shows you how to react on some level when you meet that person in real life. And so, yeah, I think it's important, but I think it's something we've been doing all along. Uh, all along. I remember for me that the first time I had ever heard about a gay person was Colossus. Oh my God. You're talking about Mark Miller's book. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's very good. And I would not normally, uh, have a lot of positive things to say as it comes to the, uh, the progressive, the progressivism of Mark Miller's work, but that is very good to hear. And I'm glad that that happened for you. You know, but that for me, at least, I, I don't know if I'll leave this part in or edit it out or not, but it was exposing to a style of life that you hadn't necessarily heard of before, right? And I thought thought that was interesting that comics, maybe some people would not think that that's where it would come from, but that is where it comes from, or at least for for me it was. Well, I think that's been a lot of things, man. You know, like 
people love to say and question like, oh, you know, like, well, first of all, like when we speak about diversity, like no one is on the side of tokenism. That's that's doing half the work. But people like to question the validity of, of the need to push like different types of people as the leads in comics and things like that. But the reality is, uh, A, it's always been there. Uh, comics have always been an outsider medium. It's just that now more people get to be the outsiders. Originally, it was people like Peter Parker, quote-unquote, nerds and losers. But it was always an outsider medium. But beyond that as well, uh, the books that we hold up as paragons for all the people and all the folks that claim to think that they don't want, quote-unquote, politics in their comics. And I should digress and say that admitting that people exist is not a political uh, position. You know, the existence of people of color is not a political position. The existence of gay people is not a political position. That's reality. So I already pushed back against the idea that including these folks somehow inherently makes a book political. Uh, you know, that's like saying putting New York in a comic makes it liberal uh, because that city predominantly votes Democratic, it's ludicrous. New York exists. People live there. Uh, but more to the point, the books that we hold up as the 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 paragons of storytelling are intensely political. Watchmen is intensely political. Uh, Dark Knight Returns is intensely political. So I find the whole argument very confusing, uh, and I think it's too bad in many ways. Because at the end of the day, the reason we do these things is for the very experience that you just said. Uh, happened to you reading Ultimate X-Men. It's to show you that maybe someone you haven't met before or a type of person you haven't met before is just as human as you uh, and deserves that type of respect. Hardest character to write? That's not even a hard question. It's just that there are a lot of ways to answer it. Um, you know, I honestly think Batman is one of the hardest characters to write. People think it's easy, but at the same time, like the way that he's been built up recently makes him in many ways more of a creative challenge than Superman or Wonder Woman. Uh, because despite the buzz phrase that he's just a man, in the time since the 90s, uh, we've come to this idea that he's always got a plan has made him in some ways even more unbeatable than Superman and and Wonder Woman, as the Trinity goes. So, if Batman always has a plan, then the challenge as a creator of finding a way to upend that plan uh, is only exp <laughs> only escalates every time someone finds a new way to do it, and uh, only becomes more daunting as time goes on. So, to me, he's actually a huge challenge. You know, with Batman Shadow, we did just that. You know, we looked at Batman and said, "Batman is the world's greatest detective. He he must understand." everything he must so how does he deal with the fact but he's just a man and men are mortal so how do we turn that into a story well how does he deal with the fact that when he meets the shadow the shadow is the world's greatest mystery he's truly unknowable and to have something that is truly unknowable is to be mortal but batman has never had to deal with that before and so in that story, that's how we solved that, because it was him struggling, essentially, with his own mortality in the guise of the shadow, a living embodiment of the fact that for all he will always try, he can't know everything. And that's what we do in everyday life, you know? And so I think we ended up reinforcing this idea that he is just a man, 
because uh, you can endeavor to always have a plan. You can endeavor to be the world's greatest detective and figure anything out. But he's still a man. And so there are some things we'll just never know. And, and, and that's at least how we solved that problem one time in one book. But solving the problem of Batman and how to challenge him now after 80 plus years is, inc- is an incredible challenge. Uh, and I do think he's probably one of the hardest characters to write. You know his reactions, like his reactions are very easy, but crafting the challenge around him is incredibly hard. Yeah, I would imagine that's pretty daunting in a sense with some of these characters that it feels like everything that's been done has been done before almost. I mean, I mean, it must be difficult to kind of come up with new things. Well, I mean, the world changes around these characters. Um, and some concepts are always going to be subversive. Like, I actually think a character, you know, Wonder Woman has actually come very easily for me. I mean, I've spent years now on and off working with her. But the fact is, is that, like, She's someone who stands for peace. She's someone who stands for truth. And those are both concepts that throughout the entirety of human history have always been extremely incendiary and extremely radical because we are a culture that has always been bouncing from one conflict to another. And the idea that that would end is apocalyptic, not in the fire coming from the sky way, but uh, from the fact that society would truly change. It would be the end of the world as we know it if we ever actually had world peace, the thing that Wonder Woman wants. And so the idea that there would be people that are threatened by that and stand in her way is actually very easy to imagine. Uh, And I find challenging her, yeah, like she has, challenging her physically is uh, one thing, but challenging her emotionally and as a character and what she stands for, there are challenges for that every day. Who would you consider to be the most underrated character out there right now? Um, well, on one hand, I'm writing him. It's Martian Manhunter. Um, he's been my favorite character at DC since I was a kid. First, because he just looked cool. And then as I started to learn more about him, uh, my, my opinions deepened. And to find out why, you'll have to read that book. I'm not going to talk a lot more about that. Uh, it is, I think, the best work I've ever done in my life. So I, I, I am unabashed in my desire to push people to check that out. Uh, but the short version is I think that he really has the most relatable and adult version of that quintessential uh, last survivor of a, of a dying race struggle that we have obviously put on Superman and Supergirl at, at times it was put upon Thor, uh, excuse me, by JMS and Olivier Coipel. Um, but for all those people, there is uh, a disconnect, uh, that doesn't exist for John Jones. Um, you know, Superman lost his entire planet and that is very sad. I don't mean to sound like a misanthrope, but, uh, at the same time, he's a baby. He never lived there. Uh, he read about a genocide that he escaped after it happened. Um, Supergirl lived there. She had friends. So she had more to lose than Superman. And I think that loss is more real. You know, she has real firsthand memories of Krypton. And now that place no longer exists. But she was a teenager. Uh, John Jones was a policeman on Mars. His job 
was to protect Martians. And then he lost his entire planet. And then he lost his family. And I think that his reaction as an adult who, like, again, like, reasonably, as one person, he could not have saved the planet. But we as adults are irrational in times of pain and trauma and crisis. So I think the fact that he really looks at himself as and, and takes this grief as this, I could have done more. What could I have done? And that's the source of his pain and how he reinvents himself into, into a very accepting, prideful hero when he overcomes that. That journey to me is one of, is truly one of the most relatable adult, tragic, but also human stories in the DC universe. People, we've always loved to say that, you know, Oh, he's a big green alien, but he's the most human member of the justice league. When you read our book and you read other books with him, you see what that really means. And what that really means is one of failure and uh, of having failures and having mistakes and overcoming them. I got to give you credit, man. I've always kind of looked past Martian Manhunter, but you just got me interested. Like, I'm going to go check this out. <laughs> that sounds like, huh, I got to go get that. When you're reading a comic, do you go digital or do you have to have the print version in front of you? I don't have the luxury or the space to read everything by hand, but I would if I could, I guess is the answer. Um, you know, when you're at, you know, when you're at DC or Marvel, you get a comp list or so like every, every right now, every book that DC publishes, we do get for free. And I'm actually very thankful that those are digital comps because it allows me to read through them and keep up to date on what everyone else is doing. Excuse me. And, and also go back for reference, uh, when I, when I need things very quickly. I need an answer on a book that's been published. But as a reader and not as a creator who was reading for the purpose of my job, 100% hard copy. If I like something in digital, I will almost always buy the physical edition uh, because that's what I will come back to, you know, on like a rainy afternoon when I've made my 30th cup of coffee. On that rainy day where you've had like 30 cups of coffee, what what book are you going back to time and time again for you? The book I read to remind myself why I love comics is Flex Mentello, the uh, Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley book, um, which is messy. Uh, you know, I was – weird. okay, so this is what – when you do the convention circuit, being a comic book creator ends up being a series of weird – circumstances where you're in green rooms with uh, people who are much more accomplished than you, but also you're in the middle of nowhere. And so you all end up going to dinner. And so I found myself talking to this guy and he was going on and on about how Watchmen is the greatest comic ever written. And Watchmen is great, by the way, I'm not here to denigrate a classic. I don't consider it the greatest comic ever written. I consider it one of the greatest, but to me, the greatest book ever comic ever written is Flex Mentallo. But it's messier. It's not a clockwork comic, uh, but its ideas are so bold and, and riveting and, and emotional and true. Um, but the point of the story is that I'm arguing Watchmen with this guy and convincing him to try to read Flex Mentello. But I can already tell that even if he reads it, he's made up his mind. Uh, and yes, he read it and and eventually said, you know, I like a lot of what it says, but it is, you know, not it's not a perfect you know, stained glass, whatever, take your, pick your metaphor, like, like Watchmen. I was like, okay, man, well, some people don't like stained glass. Some people don't like a clock. Some people like a Jackson Pollock. And that's what Flex Metallo is. 
Uh, and I ended up arguing this with David Hayter, who wrote the Watchmen movie, and I ended up looking like a huge asshole. But that's a uh, that's 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 besides the point. I could not convince him that that Flex Mantello was better than Watchmen, but I still truly believe that. But it really comes down to what I said. You know, some people uh, want the Sistine Chapel. Some people want uh, Gerhard Richter or something like that. And when it comes to the books that I love and remind me why I love comics, it's ideas, it's raw, it's unfinished. That's why I'm a Grant Morrison guy. It's why I'm uh, like a Werner Herzog film guy. And so a book like Flex Mantella, which does have some rough edges, but it is about the wonder of comics and our, and that beautiful absurdity that is in comics, essentially saving us from the cynicism of our adult lives. Uh, that's so important to me. And the book is so beautifully told. And yeah, that's something I will read probably at least once a year. Every year I'm just like empowered to be like, man, I need to go be a better creator. I need to kick twice as much ass. If I've even kicked an ass, now I have to kick two. Last question for me, best, Superpower you would most want to have, superpower you would least want to have. Is this an all-ages rated show? Because that second question has like a variety of answers. Um, uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> that, is a, that is an excellent point. We cater, no, to no. An, we cater to an audience 21 and over. Let's put it that way. Well, no, no, no. Well, let me say this. I'm researching a new book. I'm actually writing the pitch this week, and I'm extremely excited about it. Like... I, oh, I hope it comes out. I'm very, very excited about it. Uh, but one of the characters in it, and, it, and God help the one person who gets a no prize and figures out what I'm pitching by me saying this. But um, anyway, one of the characters' powers in it is that he can fit into any space no matter how small. <laughs> and that's uh, both fascinating to me as a creative challenge, but I think that's also the power I would least like to have. What about the uh, best one? Uh, the best one? I don't know, man. Um, you know what? I actually, this is not probably the normal, like, like PBR and I play Xbox answer, but I really like Cypher's power, uh, from X-Men. I think that the idea that you could intuitively learn any language is really, really fascinating to me. Uh, and it's as Hickman has shown us in House of X and Powers of Ten uh, that the applications are actually wide-reaching, and it's actually much more interesting of a power than people initially thought. So I think that's my answer. Um, I think it would be, you know, there's obviously all of the basic ones, like it would be great to be able to read minds or turn invisible and things like that. But when you really get down to it in the real world, I think being able to intuitively understand any language and probably create your own languages is really fascinating to me. You know, I did, um, I did some disaster relief with a friend of mine uh, in Florida last year. And uh, it's just, when I think about what Cypher can do, I, I think about how you could really solve a lot of problems uh, that we have in the current moment. Because uh, how much of human life comes down to miscommunication? And so if someone's power at its core is communication, that's someone who can change the world. And that's really fascinating to me. That's pretty. That's all I got, man. What's coming up next for you? 
uh, endless amounts of Wonder Woman. Uh, so what's coming up is I am on yeah. So I, I'm on Wonder Woman um, for the for the foreseeable future, which I'm very excited about. It's uh, come 2020, it's going to be my main DC work. My favorite DC work, uh, Martian Manhunter, is wrapping up. It'll be wrapped up in probably January, I think. Maybe February, because uh, we took two skip months that are both passed, but I, I, I know it's a print. The holiday schedule is a bizarre thing, uh, because printers shut down for three weeks in December, so like we send three months' worth of books to print in like five weeks and my normal knowing when things come out is thrown in complete disarray, but that will be wrapping up soon. And, uh, even Tom King, who likes only to write about people being sad and crying by windows by his own admission, read the last issue and thought it was very nice. Uh, so, so I will, I'll be very excited for people to see that. And as well, as I said, Wonder Woman is ongoing. I, I we have our, you know, we've been tying up a little bit of stuff from year of the villain. Um, that's going to culminate in issue 750, which is her anniversary issue coming out in January. I'm putting the finishing touches on my story now, which is the lead story. And uh, look, it, it is the, in my opinion, the 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 finale of the stuff that began with Cheetah and Wonder Woman uh, in Wonder Woman Rebirth. I'm very happy to be able to put a bow on that as it comes to Wonder Woman as a book. I have no idea what will be going on outside of that book, but I'm the writer of Wonder Woman. Uh, so... And at the same time, it also kicks off with Diana's new mission. It's just a, a huge affirmation of who she is, what she does, why she does it, and that's really important to me. And uh, after that, it's it's there's just so much coming in that book. You've seen uh, so much from her past, an iconic Wonder Woman villain return in Wonder Woman Annual number three in October, and that's going to be moving right along until it comes to a head uh, in the spring. Um, I don't want to talk too much about what's going on, but like it really is 2020 is going to be a huge year. When I came on the book, the editor said, what are just, well, just tell me the stories you absolutely want to tell. You need to tell with Wonder Woman and we will make it happen. So we're in the process of making it happen. Uh, and you guys are going to get some really, really wild, uh, iconic moments with Diana that you don't know are coming. And Outside of that, I should also say with Aftershock in 2020, I'm launching a book that I've wanted to write my whole life. It's called Kill Man. Uh, it's an LGBT mixed martial arts story uh, that combines uh, a lot of the themes from the movie Creed uh, and, and the fighter with uh, the story of Emil Griffith, uh, who's a boxer, who's a queer boxer from the 60s who was called some slurs in the ring and lost his temper and killed his opponent in the ring. Uh, and that's a two graphic novel series. I should say a two graphic novella series that I'm writing with Phil Kennedy Johnson, who, by the way, uh, if you have, or you're not reading the last God at Vertigo, Phil Kennedy Johnson, great writer, great book, uh, incredible art by Ricardo Federici. That's a digression, but we're writing this book together. Uh, Phil studies MMA. Uh, I study being bisexual every day of my life, so there will be a lot of truisms in that book. And also the artist, Alec McLean Morgan, also works mixed martial arts. So this is something I, probably for five years, I've been trying to get someone to let me tell the story, and Aftershock has been very supportive. So I can't wait for that to come out. And uh, yeah, there's even more coming in 2020 that uh, hopefully you guys will find out soon. But for me right now, it is Wonder Woman, it's Originals, and uh, well, Whatever, wherever this guy that can fit into small spaces is going to show up, but you'll find out about that pretty soon. 
I want to thank Steve so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're Profoundly Pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We have also linked to him on the RSS feed that's on his podcast. His stories are awesome. It's really cool to see that after all of this time, writers like him are still able to make you, to make you interested in these characters and come up with new stories to tell. I think it's really cool. I think it's fascinating. Okay, now let's go ahead and give John Shull a call and let's just see what his Christmas plans are. Hello? Wow. Do you try to put bass in your voice when you answer the phone like that? No, I I actually was I was I was thinking about doing something more like dramatic and exciting, but the last two times I've done that, you either don't say anything or you say you're really disappointed. So this time I just figured I would just answer it normally. Okay, well, just do what you were going to do and let me judge it. Nikki, baby, tell me something good. Okay, I want to dislike it, but I but I don't. Uh, did you take that from a movie or did you just make it up? I'm not sure which one you did. It's from a movie, but... I can't tell you what movie, but I know I've heard it before, if that makes any sense. Are, are you generally a movie quoter? Like, are you that person who's going to quote movies all the time? I mean, I, won't, I, I will say I, I'm not, but I, but I am. I'd say it's probably like 2080 of my daily speech, which is it's actually probably a lot. Yeah, that's a lot, actually. I mean, if you're quoting movies 20% of your speaking time, that's a lot of quoting movies. Maybe between like 5 and 10%. I even feel like that's still a lot. I think 1% might be be really the cutoff on that. Yeah, I mean, I do talk a lot. I mean, a lot. Yeah. You you do. Are you a nervous talker, though, or do you just have a lot to say? My, my job, I, because I mean, you know what I do. I could tell everyone Not else. Not really. No, I, I really don't. I mean, I, I'm an assignment editor. Yeah, right? I mean, I know station, what your so. job, I, I know what your job title is, but what you do. Right. <laughs> I don't know. That's the thing, right? It's one of those positions that even if I explain it, people are still like, I still don't know what that means. Yeah. Well, let's just leave it at that. And if they're really interested, they can contact you for more information. Um, That's right. At the, at the real show. Bring it. Ugh! What do you do if you get a Christmas present that you don't like? Like, do you poker face it? Can people tell that you obviously don't like it? What are you doing? So I poker face it now, but only because of a an experience that I had where I learned that I need to poker face it and not show, like, real emotion. Why would you need to learn that? Why would you have to have an experience beyond the age of, say, six where someone had to tell you that? <laughs> That's like, hey, you know what? When I was 15, I learned not to grab the stove. Are you not supposed to grab the stove? No, you should try it. See what happens. <laughs> I've done it. I've Third degree burn. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Get out of the way, honey. I'm starving. What? Uh, <laughs> never mind. Okay. That's also uh, from a. But that might actually be a TV show. But um, big difference. Regardless, um, I, I was given a gift by uh, my grandparents. What was the gift? Uh, if I remember right, I think it was like a pair of. Uh, of uh, flannel pajamas. Okay. It's a little bit of a lame gift, but still. Well, I mean, I think I was like 14 or 15. Okay, you should have known better than to yell at Gam Gam and Gampa about giving you <laughs> flannel pajamas. 
You're well, a terrible grandson. First off, I didn't I didn't yell, but like I I may have I, I, apparently I did something that was much worse. I you know took off the wrapping paper without even looking in the box. I knew what it was and I put it off to the side. I didn't acknowledge it. I didn't like show any kind of fake emotion. I was just like, oh, okay. And put it off to the side. And apparently that is like a major, you know, no, no. You at least have to acknowledge the gift. You didn't even like make eye contact. You just saw what it was inside the box and immediately put it away, put it to the side. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I, I, under the wrapping paper saw that it was like from Target flannel something. Oh, well, I, you know. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Threw it off to the side and kept going. Yeah, I mean that's not that that's a that's that's decently rude. I mean, I think yeah, that you you at least have that's to pretty be, rude. Yeah, it's up there, especially when it's gam gam. <laughs> I mean, if it's I mean, I, I've never, I mean, I've never had, and I don't think I ever would have a full meltdown. I, I just, I, I that's that's not me. I definitely not not now. I don't even like I don't even like getting gifts now. No, I don't like it either because there's a 99% chance I'm not going to get something that I really want simply because I'm of the age now where anything that like I would really like is way too expensive for anybody to get me as a gift. So I'd rather just not get anything than have to throw that thing out or what 6 months from now. How how do you feel about when people ask you what you want? Like how do you respond? Like say your mother comes up to you and goes at like right now, at your age that you are now, and goes, hey, Nikki, baby, and like, you know, grabs your cheeks and goes, what do you want for Christmas this year? First of all, if that's still the relationship that you have with your mother, uh, you should probably go into some sort of counseling. That seems <laughs> like that's probably traumatic for one of, if not both of you. But <laughs> I, I, get what you're, I get what you're saying in that sense that, no, I mean, my parents don't even ask me. My dad has just gotten to the point where he doesn't give a shit anymore. He's like, here's a gift card. I don't care. Here's your gift. Leave me alone. Where's, where's... Where's the gift card to Outback? Oh, no. It's one of those Visa cards. He's not... Oh, oh nice. He's, he's not getting specific with it. He's concerned about when that Christmas ham is coming out, and he doesn't give a shit. So here's your <laughs> gift card, and everybody shut up. So basically, it's like you know him and your mom go to the store, and she's like, can you just go in and grab a couple of gift cards? He's like, oh, fuck. Oh, yeah, he's begrudging about it. He's the kind of person, if you sent him a list of something, he will ignore that list and then just get you the gift card. I, I respect it. It's, it's, it's efficiency, really. The only person that I would like to get like a legitimate, thoughtful gift from is my wife. Which hasn't happened since you've had kids, I'm sure. No. And there's really <laughs> only one thing men want. Um... To be left alone and to just watch TV by themselves. I don't know what you were thinking about. <laughs> Look, here's my other question for you. When you go to the bathroom, how do you pee? Do you unbutton your pants or do you oh go straight through God. the fly? Where did this question come up? Legitimate question. Do you unbutton your pants or do you go straight through the fly? Uh, I go straight through the fly usually. Okay. Why? Uh, I mean, because... I mean... Uh, because usually when I'm out peeing... And like I do, that's how I am in public. Like if I'm wearing jeans or or, or khakis or something, you can go straight. You're at a you're at a urinal. Yeah, like, I don't. I guess you could unbutton it and it wouldn't look weird. But I, I'm just I've just always gone through the five hole. You know, okay. whipped out the snake and let it you know let it feed for a few minutes. See, 
I don't really see what the difference is. It's just merely a, a question. I don't. I'm not. The only one that I condemn a little bit is somebody who pees out of the bottom of their shorts. Like if they have gym shorts on and they just lift the leg up and go out through the bottom <laughs> of their shorts. That's just ridiculous. Like you can't do that in public at least. <laughs> you must be rocking a, a python if you're able to do that. Well, you can just pull the shorts up pretty high. I mean, they're gym shorts. It's not like you're wearing Lycra spandex. Well, I don't know what well, you're doing in your personal life, but... Well, you know, sometimes you have those spandex underwear and you have to, like, take them all the way down. Like little kid style? Like, drop them all the way to the floor? <laughs> sometimes. Have you ever done that drunk in a bar? It's quite humorous, just like on purpose. Like, you just drop them all the way. No, but I, I've done some other stupid things at a bar trying to pee, which are embarrassing. Okay, well, give me give me the, the most embarrassing one. Oh, when you passed out and the picture was taken of you? No, I don't even remember that. Uh, this one I kind of remember was that I didn't think I was drunk, and I went to the bathroom, and I was feeling really good about it. I'm like, I didn't do anything. I didn't pee anywhere except where I was supposed to, blah, blah, blah. And I come out, and I was wearing, like, khaki shorts. <laughs> and apparently I, I, like, I, 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 like, I did nothing. I just peed my pants. And the whole right side of my, like, it was just one big pee stain. You didn't check in halfway through? <laughs> I guess not. Are you ready for your segment? Uh, yeah, let's Plural. Let's get it going. Okay. I'm going to get a little sentimental here on you for just 30 seconds. Okay, I'm going to time it. Okay, you, let, you tell me when. You already started. You're six right, seconds fine. in. So I want to give a quick shout out to you. Uh, for posting, uh, you know, the recent updates on the, uh, the, the numbers on the podcast. That's, uh, that's good news. And, uh, you know, you're doing a good thing, man. You put in a lot of hard work and, and, and we have a lot of fun. So I'm glad to see that people like listening to us babble about nothing. I'm done. What was that? I was seconds? right there. God, I was so looking forward to editing that whole thing out because I thought it was going to go way too long. But now that you actually made it in under 30 seconds. And were succinct and had a thoughtful, well-researched point. I may have to leave it in. I didn't even cry, so let's just just leave it in. That's a victory for everybody. Okay, maybe I'll make uh, like a, then, maybe I'll make. And like then a, I, I want to give a shout out this week. It's going to go to David uh, Haylett. Uh, he comments a lot on our social media. I think he's a pretty big follower. Um, he had he had kind of an interesting one on. Uh, we posted you know our our favorite dance songs. And I, I, I want to ask him why he chose this song, but he said anything from the 80s, but then he posted a gif of Blondie. Well, that's in the 80s. I mean, that's anything from the 80s. Right, but I, that Blondie song kind of sucks. So I just need a little bit of clarification. I need to know if that's what you're dancing to. That's great. But, you know, so shout out to David for, uh, you know, checking in and, uh, you know, checking in, uh, giving us comments, things like that. We appreciate it. Uh, but moving on here, are you are you ready to answer some hard hitting questions that our viewers just they they want to know about you? Well, number one, we don't have viewers. This is a podcast, so they listen. Listeners. Okay. God yeah. Damn it. Sure. Don't you just hate that when you have something really good lined up and you screw up <laughs> one thing about it and it ruins the whole fucking thing? But you know what? I, I I'm learning that you're only trying to make me better. You're like that football coach. That makes me do up downs while drinking warm diet Dr Pepper in the middle of July, uh, till I throw up. Like you're just trying to make me better. 
Yeah, didn't that coach cut you? <laughs> he actually made me a water boy. It's okay, though. It's still just still on the team. Still on the team. <laughs> All right. So uh, you have to pick one of these. And no questions. You just have to pick it. So either a neck tattoo, like a barcode on, on the back of your neck, or a tramp stamp. Oh, that's a barcode. Easily. Tramp stamp, <laughs> that's, that's not even a question. I mean, both of them are pretty bad, but the tramp stamp is, that's even worse, right? You can, especially for a guy. Man can't, you can't have a male tramp stamp. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I wrote that down and I thought about it. I'm like, I'm not sure which one I'd rather have. You would go with a tramp stamp? I mean, I, I I don't know. I don't I don't I don't want a barcode on the back of my neck. That's better than a tramp stamp. I see. Yeah, it's 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 a tough one for me. I mean, I lean barcode, but I I don't know. I really don't. Okay. All right. What's your next one? <laughs> Say it's Christmas Eve, and you have to pick either of these scenarios. You either have to be out like it. In line as the store's closing, like to purchase a gift, say the line's like an hour long, or you have to be at a family Christmas party with every family member that you dislike for at least two hours and you can't drink alcohol. Oh, the alcohol is what ruins it. I would take the line simply because of a time quotient, right? An hour in line is better than two hours with family members that I don't like. Because at least then in the line, I can like check my phone or play games or something like that. If you're in the family thing, you're going to get called out because it's going to be that annoying family member that's going to be like, we ain't on your phone the whole time. Well, Aunt Gretchen, don't be such a bitch and nobody will, it won't be such a horrible experience. (laughs) See, I I don't even go near stores uh, this week or this next week uh, leading up to Christmas because I just don't want to battle for parking. Yeah, you're a coward when it comes to parking. What's your What's your next one? Coward when it comes to a, a lot of things. All I right. know. And we then know. Um, this one's pretty simple, but uh, you have to make one with your kids, either a gingerbread house or cookies. Which one are you spending the time to do? Cookies. Gingerbread house, you're way too involved. There's no way that that doesn't end in crying or the destruction of said gingerbread house and then you getting really frustrated. Cookies, 100%. <laughs> so happy you said the destruction because... I have a feeling we're both the kind of dad that would just get the one slightest mishap and we're just smushing that shit to nothing. <laughs> no, I'm a patient man. I can see you getting all the way to the end, then realizing like you left your keys inside the gingerbread house <laughs> or something important, having to smash the whole thing and start over. <laughs> well, I, I, I would do that and then I would have no intention of doing it again until my wife walked in, calling me an idiot and telling me that I traumatized her child forever. I don't understand this obsession with gingerbread. I think it's an inferior cookie, to be honest with you. I mean, the ones I've had are good. I. It's not I, better than I mean, chocolate. I, you, no, well, no way. I gingerbread's not bad, though. I mean, it's. It's not. I put great. it up there as like average. Yeah, I go low side of average for gingerbread. I mean, this isn't going to surprise you, but I would rather do gingerbread than cookies. Because unless I'm making like all chocolate or chocolate chip cookies, believe it or not, I'm not that much of a cookie fan. Okay. No, I believe it. I, I can. I, you're more of an ice cream man. You're goddamn right, I am. All right. Um, are you ready for our top five? I, I am. I, I know that you're going to be all over this one because this is like your your area of expertise. Yeah. As speaking of that, we're doing top five villains, right? Yes. Okay. 
So I didn't actually make a list because I thought what I was going to do is because I'm a pretty big comic book fan. I've been a comic book fan. I've really kind of followed it and kept up with a lot of the characters for a long time. So what I'm going to do is just criticize your list. (laughs) That's terrible. Well, I'll make up one on the fly, but mainly I'm going to criticize your list. That that's fine. That's fine. What's your number five? Uh, Doctor Doom. Okay, I'm very impressed that you had him on the list. That's too low for Doctor Doom. He needs to be much higher than that. But that's pretty good. Uh, all right. So so yeah. So that's my number four. Or my sorry, my number five. Um, I had to do research on most of these because I'm not as big of a uh, aficionado as you are. So uh, my number four, I have Lex Luthor. Okay, both things. Here's my problem with it. I think you just Google the list. I don't think you actually know anything. What makes Lex Luthor a good villain? Uh, well, I do know uh, from my research that he was uh, Superman's kryptonite. No, he's not Superman's kryptonite. Kryptonite is well, Superman's kryptonite. Well, whatever. He was the bad guy in the Superman movies. Yeah, that doesn't make him Superman's kryptonite. Kryptonite is Superman's kryptonite. Lex Luthor Listen. is just a person. You can criticize me all you want. I, I I Googled at least three and a half lists to accumulate my lists. Okay. Um, my number three, I have down as Magneto. All right. that's the, Look, your list is pretty good right now. I would put Magneto as my number two. I'll give okay. my list after you're done. No, I'm going to give. go ahead and give my list now. I'm going to say that my number five would be Darkseid. My number four would be Thanos. My number three would be Doctor Doom. My number two is Thanos. Okay. Um, and then my number one. Don't give your number one. I didn't give my number two yet. Well, what why did you just your t- number two? My number two would be Magneto. Why did you pick Thanos as your number two? Well, and I actually know Thanos, or think I. Oh, know you've Thanos. met him personally. Here we see. That's why I said I think I know Thanos because I knew I knew. You well, were first of all, if you did like meet that. him, you would know. Here we go. Here we go. It's hard to miss. He's like please, eight feet please. tall and purple. Looks like Grimace. Please, sir, comic book uh, extraordinary. Tell me more about uh, how you're the greatest. Uh, what would you like me to like? How should you want me to define my comic book knowledge? It's pretty extensive. <laughs> how how old is Thanos? Well, he's thousands of years old. All right. Anyways, um, I mean, I could have made up I'll, anything, and you wouldn't have known the answer. I mean, probably not, but I think you still need to be impressed with my list so far. You're going to hate my number one. No, there's only one that should be number one. I think it comes down to number one, unless you're going to say something that's related to Blade, and then I'm I'm going to get really upset. <laughs> All right, what's your number two? My number two is Magneto. Okay, that's 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 fair. I, I, I have nothing against Magneto. Do you know what his powers are? Yeah, you can like. Can he like get in your brain and manipulate you? No. His name oh, is no, Magneto. That's, that's Professor X, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think Magneto's powers are? Yeah, his he can attract metal. Obviously, duh. <laughs> yeah. <I> like <laughs> that's nice. <a> brain fart. <laughs> Aren't they brothers or something though? What's or this? Like... What's this strong guy's power? I don't know what it is. What could his strong guy's power be? Yeah. Yeah, that that was dumb. That was not smart. <laughs> no, okay. they're not brothers, but they are childhood friends. <gasps> Someday we could be like Professor X and Magneto. 
We just have to have uh, a big disagreement and get superpowers. No, that 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 can't be us. Maybe you and Chris Gad can do that someday. No, he's, he's got a weight problem. Not that <laughs> he's <laughs> had an intelligence problem. Uh, okay, let's let's hear your number one. Uh, so I put down Omega Red. What? Just kidding. Got you. <laughs> I put down the Joker. Yeah, it's the jo- I think that's probably that's probably legitimately everybody's number one. I think is the Joker. He's the best villain. But I think what makes him the best is because he's you know he's he's so like just a normal dude that's just a fucking crazy person like you know. And then you got Bruce Wayne, who's the billionaire, you know, and he just does he just damn it, Heath Ledger, you know. Who do you think? Who do you? Whose Joker performance did you like the best? So I haven't seen the new one with uh, Joaquin Phoenix, but what? What do you think that one's called? <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> uh, clown mask. Clown um, face. What's his powers? Uh, <laughs> um, he's super stretchy. <laughs> Actually, by the way, when I was researching comic book villains, there are some. Really interesting ones out there. Um, like who? Like the Black Mask. Oh yes, Batman has the best villains. They're all pretty good. <laughs> you watch one that I was looking at um, uh, called the Brainiac, which looks pretty badass. It's just Brainiac or Brainiac, whatever. Okay. Um. Anyways, uh, my favorite uh, Joker performance. I mean, it's obviously Heath Ledger, but. I give some props to uh, Jack Nicholson too. Yeah, I would. From what I have heard, I would go Heath Ledger, then probably Joaquin Phoenix, then actually no. What I would really do is I would put Mark Hamill at number one. Then I would go. <laughs> oh, the, his his version though of the Joker in Batman the Animated Series is pretty much what everybody else bases theirs off of. Like, they just have more modern takes. But I think if you took a timeless take of the Joker, it's Mark Hamill's version of it. And then probably Heath Ledger, then Joaquin Phoenix, then Jack Nicholson. You know, I always wondered what Mark Hamill did, like, after Star Wars. And here I come out, come to find out he's like this huge animated, uh, you know, TV actor. Yeah, he's he's very, it's called a voiceover actor. Um, but he's incredibly talented. He's really done some amazing stuff. Who's in your honorable mention? Thank you, sir, Nick, for your uh, for your uh, clarification there. No um, problem. I like to pay attention to the world. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see. I, I put down the Green Goblin just because I'm a Spider-Man fan. Um, I also have Harley Quinn because, well, she's pretty hot. Okay. Um, That's a good reason. <laughs> I put Bane in there just because he's, uh, Tom Hardy's a badass and He's that Batman movie he was in, and then I also put down I couldn't I couldn't remember his name, and I didn't do the research to to find him. But the clown out of Spawn. Oh, I don't know what that one is either. But that one's pretty. I know who you're talking about, but I don't know what the name of that clown is. Yeah, and then uh, I don't know. Then I wrote down Juggernaut and Catwoman, and that that was it. Fucking cat. Mm. Catwoman Only, hard pass. Have you seen Michelle Pfeiffer in the uh, that Batman movie? I know. I, I think everyone tries to forget it. <laughs> That's your own fault. Then I'm not watching for a performance. I can tell you that. Oh, he's going there. 
Uh, my honorable mention, you know, you got Mr. Sinister. I think he's a really good villain. Apocalypse, Sinestro. I've never really cared about any of the Superman villains. I never really thought that they were very interesting. Doomsday, maybe you could put him up there. Good good choices, all solid. Slade, Deathstroke the Terminator, as other people call him. I call him Slade because he's a personal friend. Uh, Fantastic Four, all their villains are lame. Who cares about, well, except for Doctor Doom. Yeah, Batman and the X-Men probably have some of the best villains, I think. I want to thank Steve so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're Profoundly Pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We have also linked to him on the RSS feed that's on his podcast. His stories are awesome. It's really cool to see that after all of this time, writers like him are still able to make you, to make you interested in these characters and come up with new stories to tell. I think it's really cool. I think it's fascinating. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.